Peace be with you. We'll be in John chapter 20, 24 through 31. So if you've got your Bible open to there or turn your Bible on, if you're a tablet, phone user, that's fine. No judgment on my part. Just read your Bible. So um, John 20, 24 through 31. While, while you're opening, turning on, getting there, I just want to give a, a big thanks to you know, everybody that serves in the church, but also your giving. And we just try to do every other week or so. We give you some kind of update on that. And it's just been super encouraging the last couple of months. I think we were on target this month, or we're going to be on target, I think, in our giving and as well as last month. And I think in the last few months, like five, we have five new givers. You know who you are. Thank you um, for joining us uh, financially um, in the mission here. And so just big thanks to you. So big thanks um, for your generosity and for your sacrificial giving. It serves us, uh, the ministry here, it helps us do things that I think, I, I just think are so good for the community at large. And so all thanks to you. Appreciate God moving through you in that way. And so I just want to say thank you. And, and for those of you that have just continued to be sacrificial over the years, can thank you so much. It just means the world um, to us. Um, and so... Um, so uh, before we uh, open this up and read this, I just want to kind of update us on where we are. Uh, we're finishing up this series on spiritual doubt, what kind of a stream of the culture is calling deconstruction, if you're familiar with that term. If not, that's okay. Uh, and we come, we wrap it up and we, with this particular passage in John 20. It's probably one of the most famous stories because we've looked at different stories on doubt, and this is probably one of the most famous ones. Um, the story of, of Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, and uh, the church culture, you know, if you've been raised in that, they, they nicknamed him uh, Doubting Thomas. Um, here's what I want to invite you to do, like, uh, humbly as I can say this, can we boycott that name? The Bible doesn't call him that, you know? We did, we did, we did but the Bible doesn't. And um, I think we should call him Confessing Thomas, and, uh, because that's really what he does, and uh, I think it's in part, and hopefully I can kind of explain this here, but I think this is why John uses him. John records this scene uh, for that particular uh, reason. And so if, you, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. If, you're, if you can't, that's okay. It's just out of respect for God's word. And so we're, we're going to pick up John 20, uh, verse 24, all the way down to 31. Here's what it says. Uh, now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And, and so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, well, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put, put your finger here and see my hands? And put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that 
you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. There are many things in that little story that I read out of context that I love that I find fascinating, but there's three words that I want to put into your head right now, three words that I think are just super profound, and I'm going to spend, hopefully, the better part of the rest of the time to try to unpack in some helpful form, and that is the, th- the, 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 the three words are eight days later. <laughs> eight days later. <laughs> in verse 26. Um, so, uh, you see, Jesus was um, killed on a Friday, why we call that Good Friday. We, you know, we get together every year for that. He's killed on a Friday. He's, he, he then gets put in a tomb, and he lays in that tomb on, on a Saturday. Um, and for Jewish folks, that's the seventh day, um, which, by the way, uh, you know, in some ways, it's like a whole redo of Genesis. Um, God rested on which day? Yeah, seventh, yeah, seventh day, God rested after all of his work. So guess what Jesus does? rests in the tomb on the seventh day. So um, there's so much significance there. Um, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, and so he, 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 he's laid in the tomb. He rests in that tomb on, on Saturday, and then he resurrects on Sunday, right? And so he comes out, and then he, on that, that beautiful Sunday morning, which is why we gather in me as a church on Sundays, it's the Lord's Day, on that uh, wonderful Sunday, he uh, shows up and reveals himself to the disciples, and uh, Tommy's not there. Where's, where's Thomas? We don't know, you know? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Is Thomas on a vacation? Is he fishing? What's Thomas doing? I don't know. But like us, Thomas has tendency to miss some Sundays. Um, he, every once in a while, doesn't show up. And so, you know, to be fair, he's a human being, and we don't know what's going on, but he's not there. And so he misses out on this pivotal revealing, this unbelievable moment where Jesus shows up for the first time to reveal himself to the disciples. And so when he does apparently get there shortly after uh, Jesus leaves, uh, his, his friends tell him, look, we saw him. We, we, he, it's real. The women were right. It, 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 it really did happen. He came out of the tomb. And, and Thomas is, is, says, you know, not enough for me. I, sorry, guys. I need verifiable proof. Uh, verse 25, but he said to them, unless I see the hands and the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Now, this is interesting because Jesus, um, Jesus knows this about Thomas. Like, so what I'm trying to say is, is that even though Jesus isn't physically there, Jesus is clearly aware of it because when Jesus does later show up, a week later, um, it's the first thing he brings up. Thomas doesn't bring it back up. You know, he walks in and it's like, here, I know what you've been saying. I know what you've been saying about me behind my back, Thomas, right? Um, so it, it's very, we're, the context clues point out the fact that Jesus is very well aware of Thomas's hang-up. Um, so my question then is, if Jesus knew, what's with the space in between? Why does Jesus wait a whole week to show up for the sake of Thomas? Apparently, Jesus seems very comfortable icing Thomas, doesn't he? He just doesn't, he's fine with it, making him wait. The, the, the why is just so profound to me, and has, I think has just huge, deep implications. So, uh, 
The why to Jesus waiting has no explicit answer. I can't find it. I looked and looked and looked. Um, And maybe that's the point. That um, doubt and God hit us sometimes. And then it halts. It lingers. It doesn't get solved quickly. We have questions about God. Where are you, God, in this? Or what about this? Or I don't know. I, don't, I read this in the Bible. It makes me uncomfortable. And I just don't seem to have an answer. And I'm looking, and you're not telling me. It's not clear. And yet, it, you just sit in it. And that's so important. We look for clarity and certainty from God. And very often, seemingly, most of the time, it seems that God is just not on our timeline. He's just, he's just not in a hurry. Uh, and it's very mysterious, um, but sometimes that waiting uh, causes some of us to really drift. We get frustrated, we get angry, we get deeply sad that we don't have clarity, that we don't have the answers that we're looking for. And so maybe distrust starts to set in us and we start to just drift from God. And, and what I want to invite us to consider is this. Um, what if God's timeline which undoubtedly sometimes is frustrating to you. It's scary to you sometimes. But, but what if it's deliberately part of your maturation and your formation, your transformation in God? What if the waiting that God subjects us to at times is as absolutely deliberately part of you becoming the person that he wants you to become? What if the journey of waiting for certainty or clarity is about creating depth in you? And by depth, I'm talking about that complex mix of of wisdom, patience, maturity, understanding of of the, the complexity of life and the nuances that we need to have when we look at life. You see, and this is conjecture, but I, I just can't imagine Thomas after this. I, I can't imagine Thomas walking around the rest of his life angry with people in the fledgling church, Bible-beating them because they're slow on the uptake. Legend has it that Thomas went to India and he was the first missionary then. This is why you can meet in, in, people from India to this day with the last name Thomas. He was the first one to go spread the gospel to that place. And I doubt Thomas was going around going, you guys ask the dumbest questions. I doubt Thomas did that. My guess would be that Thomas had incredible patience for people when they're struggling with really hard, deep questions about Jesus. Here's something so important to learn about discipleship, one that I want to press into us this morning. One of the critical elements in mature discipleship is learning how to handle waiting on the Lord. Many of you have done it. Maybe all of you have. And you know it's both terribly difficult, but when you endure it and hold on to Jesus, there is this depth that is created inside of you. Let me say it again. Waiting creates depth. It creates maturity. It creates wisdom when you do it well. The ability to keep plugging away, staying curious, continuing to look and to call out for God, Continuing to open the word, continuing to kneel and pray, continuing to ask him questions, these sorts of things, to sing songs maybe, whatever it is, but continuing to do that while you wait for understanding and while you wait for comfort even. Man, that's 
That's a picture of maturity. It's really difficult, too. Now, I can't offer the specific um, lesson that Jesus wanted for Thomas and his waiting, but I do know from countless hours reading the Gospels that Jesus seems to never be in a hurry. Have you ever noticed this? Read, the, read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Read one of them and tell, show me a time where he's like, see, Jesus seems to be in a hurry there. No, 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 you won't find it. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. Sometimes you encounter stories where the disciples are like, what is his deal? Let's go, man. You know, he's just not in a hurry. He never is in a hurry. He's just always methodical about what he's doing. If anything, he seems to be slow. And so uh, not only that, he seems to almost deliberately at times leave people confounded and confused. Like he's just comfortable with that. Just purposely. I mean, just, but just, Jesus never does anything randomly or without intention. Um, I mentioned it last week, but it's remarkable. This is just a remarkable trait of Jesus as I've got to know him over the years um, as I try to study and understand him because sometimes he's just a very, he's just difficult to understand. But one of the remarkable traits of Jesus is just how often he asks questions. I talked about this last week. And, um, and so I've just been digging into that personally. And, uh, but you, the, the numbers vary a little bit, but by one account, by one theologian, um, Jesus asked people, at least reportedly in the Gospels, he asked people 307 questions. Now contrast that with the, um, what is reported by the Gospel writers that he is only asked by people 187 questions. Now, how many of those 187 questions do you think Jesus answered directly? Three. Three. <laughs> it's like, you just, you have something against answering questions, Jesus? You know, he's just comfortable not answering questions directly. Jesus is far more of a questioner than we are. And so, here's, a, here's just a sample, in case you're not familiar. I'll just go through a list here. It'll be up on the screens for you. Um, um, here's Mark 11. By, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. <laughs> Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's like, what? And a ruler asked him, this is Luke 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Luke 20, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me Daenerys, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Answer the question, man. <laughs> yeah. Matthew 9, why do, we, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Matthew 15, why, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, uh, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? <laughs> and I can keep going. I could just keep going and going and going. It's just repeated throughout the gospel. This is just what he does. He's comfortable leaving you scratching your head. When you start compiling all these times that Jesus leaves people confused or waiting, you begin to realize that Jesus seems to want us to confront ourselves. Confront ourselves. Confront our real hopes. He wants us to confront what we actually want. Uh, he wants us to confront, um, in this case, what we believe and 
Do we understand and do we know what it is that we believe? Do we understand and know why we believe what we believe? There's a lot of overlap over these weeks that we've been preaching on doubt. And one of them, if you've caught it, is just this idea that like, Jesus really wants us in, in places of doubt to do reflection. Like, he, he wants to grow us in self-awareness. Not just awareness of him, but awareness of ourselves. And so that there's two real people meeting each other. The real you and the real Jesus. And they're having a real relationship. And it's not a facade. And doubt allows that. There's a ton of opportunity for that. Um, there's, that's why doubt can be a scary thing, but it also can be a really deepening thing for you. And here lies an all-too-important lesson that we just need to pull from the story. Um, this, this is kind of a, the big idea that I want to put into your head this morning as you leave. But, and it's this, that waiting invites you to discover really important things about yourself. I mean, it doesn't have to, like if you don't want to receive the, the opportunity, the invitation in it, but it can do that. It, 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 it invites you to discover really important things about yourself, and it forces you to confront maybe hidden terms and hidden agendas that you've been hanging on to that you're just not aware of. When I was a kid, about nine years old, I uh, was at an overnight lock-in. You guys know those? Lock-ins? Do they still do these things? Probably not this day and age. Uh, you know, lock-ins. Like, we used to go to the YMCA. They used to lock those doors. No parents, all snacks, all games, all night long. Heaven, right? I used to love them. I went to a few of those things. They were amazing. I loved them as a kid. I had an exper- a spiritual experience at one of them. A real God moment. You guys want to know about it? Yes, you do. Of course you do. Midway through the night, they did kind of a raffle, you know? Every kid's name was on a ticket, and it went into like a bucket, and then they were going to draw names and give out prizes. I'm about nine years old, like I said at the time, and one of these prizes was a skateboard. And man, I wanted that skateboard. Gosh, I wanted that skateboard so bad. And so I can still vividly remember my little nine-year-old self huddled in the corner. There's probably 300 kids in this, in this, this gymnasium, and you know we're all rubbing our hands. And man, I just prayed like I ain't ever prayed before. And it was something like, God, you know, it was the best sinner's prayer anyone has ever offered. Have mercy on a sinner like me. Give me the skateboard. But it was, God, please. Um, I remember, I remember it huddled up and I just remember saying, God, if you will give me this skateboard, if you will just draw my name out of that bucket, I will follow you forever and ever. And you guess what happened? I got that skateboard. I got that skateboard. I mean, when I, I mean, I was like face, hands, you know, all like this, praying. And when they called my name and I walked to that stage in front of all of those kids, I was like every pro athlete that ever got a home run or a touchdown. I was, you know, just want to thank my God for making this possible. You know what I'm talking about? It's always their thing. That was me. Uh, so I walked away from that lock-in a believer. <laughs> a believer. At least for a month. <laughs> until I learned the hard way that faith is fickle and I'm not any good at skateboarding. And that was terrible. I've never really skateboarded ever since then. Uh, the point isn't, of course, about whether 
we think God met me on my own terms. You know, whether God entered into that bargaining, that negotiating conversation. My point is not to, although do you think he did it? I think he did it. I think God did it not out of precedent, but out of humor and a wink. Like, I'll do this one for you, buddy. But <laughs> the point is not about that. My point is, is that my ordinary nine-year-old self was practicing something that's very human, very common. But the Bible is trying to get us to confront in ourselves. It, the Bible wants us to confront this about that we do this. That, that you know, I, what, what was I doing at nine in a harmless sense? I was putting terms on God. I, was, I, I had an agenda for God. I was trying to bargain with God over love and loyalty, you know, like somehow we're on the same level. You know, my kids do this all the time. I find myself in these moments where it's like we're negotiating out candy consumption. And, and I'm like, you know, five or 10 minutes into the argument, I'm going, wait, wait, we are not peers. We're not business partners. Why are we negotiating this? Like, I know more than you do. Hush. This is how it's going to be. Um, and we get, I think in our day and age, we do this. Um, in all seriousness, so the, uh, talking about spiritual doubt, the idea of deconstructing your faith, like former beliefs that you've had maybe since you were young, if you were raised in church, these, things, these can be actually, for some of us, this can be like a very sensitive topic. And it can be troubling for, for some of us. It can be a troubling conversation because at the end of the day, you know, one of the essential ingredients to spiritual doubt, one of the things that really fuels it, um, and we've been seeing this week after week, that's why we just did it in a narrative form where we pulled out stories of people that have gone through it, because it really humanizes the experience. But one of the things you see is, is like a, one of the core ingredients of spiritual doubt is you're not getting the thing that you think that you need. You're not getting the thing that you really want, and it's causing you to reframe and re, you know, re, uh, have a new perspective, if you will, on God. That's, that's very a troubling thing. And I, and I think... Uh, I, I'm not quite smart enough to do this or studied enough to do this, but I think some of this is because, particularly in our individualistic postmodern society, we have this underlying operating system that's always happening, and that is that you know, I get to choose my own reality, I get to choose my own truth, I get to define it for myself, um, I get to define what makes sense. It's, it's, it's the supremacy of, of, of arrogance, right? Um, it's, it's just this epistemologic error that we make where we just think, oh, because I can't fully understand God, therefore he, doesn't, he can't exist. And it's like, wait a second. Um, that's, it's the supremacy of arrogance, philosophical thought. But this kind of bargaining um, or term setting with God should be expected, I think, of us in, in a culture like that. Now, the funny thing is, is I love, I love this about John, who recorded the story, I love this. This is exactly what Thomas has done, and at least in part, it's why John, I think, chose to put it as his book ending at the end of his... Now, consider for the fact that these last statements, verse 30 and 31, at the end of the passage, John says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in the book, uh, but these, what you do have in front of you, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, 
the Son of God, and that by believing, you may, have a, you may have life in his name. Now, many scholars believe that that's the original ending for John. Like, John was like, boom, done. Send it to the publisher. But, and chapter 21 got added on later as an appendix. Now, your Bible may even have, as a subheading, probably has, the purpose of this book over top of that little paragraph. That's the purpose. That's why he wrote his gospel. I want to tell people to believe. I want to give them evidence and reason to say he's the son of God. Come for you. And so as he wraps up, this is what he's been thinking. This has been his guiding principle, his guiding thought throughout his entire narrative. He's, he's, he's being very deliberate in choosing which stories to include about Jesus and, and what he knows of Jesus. And, and he waits until the very end and he's like, how do I want to... How do I want to put a bow on this? Thomas. Thomas. His struggle and then his confession. And I love this. I love this about John. He shows us a guy like Thomas. Why? Because Thomas is a perfect model of faith? No. Because he's you. Because he's me. He's just like us. Thomas put terms on his belief. And, 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 and in mercy and in kindness and grace, Jesus met him there for his own reasons. But what, what Thomas has done is it's a lot like a prenup, isn't it? It's, it's a prenuptial agreement. It, 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 he's entered into this relationship saying, I'll commit to you under these terms. I need these terms met, and I'm all in. And did you catch it? Verse 25. It's right there at the very beginning of verse 25. Unless I see, unless I see these marks, right? Place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Now, you might think you never do this, put terms, have an agenda with God. But I think that this stuff is hidden in us all the time. And then certain circumstances strike us. And if we pay attention, we go, oh, gosh, I did not know that that was there. Because what is essentially has Thomas done? He's saying, I can't believe in Jesus as the Son of God unless he meets me on my terms, meeting my requests. Look, as a pastor, and just as a friend of people that over the years, like I've heard many, 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 many people say things like, I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. So I, I, I can't believe in a God that would design gender in this way. I can't believe in a God that would design sexuality in this way. Don't make sense to me, so that God can't exist. I, don't, I can't possibly believe in a God who, who thinks in for, of forgiveness in these terms, like that kind of radical forgiveness. I can't believe in a God that would expect his people to love their enemies it's crazy. And we could go on and on and on. It's like if we can't think or imagine a God that would do that, he can't exist. Well, what is this? It's terms. The danger, anytime we're saying things like this, we're saying, I need God on my terms or I won't love him. I need God, I need a God that's these, these just, it's like to put in a particular kind of box or he can't possibly exist. It's Thomas. It's terms. 
The danger there is, of course, that we're, trying, we're not really actually wrestling with the real God. We're trying to believe in a God that we manufacture in our own preferred image. God made us in his image. And as the old theologian says, we returned the favor. We've said, you know, you, you be in my image. No, that's not how it works. And if we stop and think through, this is a terrible idea. We should not want a Jesus who is like us. We should want a Jesus that is very much not like us. Because the last time I checked, we have a lot of flaws. <laughs> a lot of things about us that are just not, not right. And we need someone to look to. We need a God to look to. And, and yes, it is difficult, you know. Yes, it is difficult to, to see the distance. Between, but, but this is where Jesus comes in and he covers that gap. And he's like, you know, you're, 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 not, you're not holy at all. I am. And I'm making a way for you. But the reality is, if you don't have a God that ever disagrees with you, you don't, you're not really wrestling with the real God. You're just not. We should never want a Jesus who is fitting every single term or agenda that we have, as difficult as that might be. So wading through your doubts is an invitation. That's all I'm trying to say. It's an invitation for you to go inward and ask yourself and to explore in that space of confusion, of longing, whatever it is that you're going through. It's an invitation for you to go inward and say, are there things here? Are there things here for me to actually confront and face? That I need God to be X. Or I, need God, I need God to do this for me to continue on with him. These might be the very things that God wants you to excavate and pull out and exhume from your system and hold it out in front and say, hmm, maybe God is wanting to have a conversation with me about these exact things. Are there some things there inside of me that I never knew I had until I found myself in this deeply uncomfortable situation, this incredibly difficult uh, circumstance? And if you let it, and here would be my encouragement to you, if you let it, and I know that can be difficult, but if you let it, it th 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 these are opportunities for you to have some of the most honest prayers you've ever had with God. And I think this is what you, you're seeing so often when you get to Psalms, there's certain prayers in the Psalms that are just radically uncomfortable for you, where you're like, oh my gosh, he just, did, that, did they just pray for people to die? For people to get, I mean, yeah, it's just honest stuff coming out. And I think that, that this is what happens when we say, God, I, I've, I'm recognizing I need you to X, or I just, I'm struggling to follow you. And I want to face it, and I want to work on it, I want to deal with it. Because at the end of the day, Friends, life-transforming belief confronts these kinds of term setting that we do. And it begins to die to them. It begins to say, God, I need your help. I want to die to this. I want to put this on the table, and however long it takes, whether it's a week, a month, or a year, or five years, I want to die to this term, this, this agenda that I've got. Help me die to it. Life transformation happens when we, when we have a belief that, that isn't about agenda, but it's about surrender. Like, it's just, it, you are who you are. I'm confronting the real God. And this is where real, real worship happens, when we're not worshiping a God that we've made in our image, but we're worshiping a God that is who he says he is, 
and even at, when it's at moments where it's really uncomfortable for us. This is real surrender. This is, this is a real kind of bowing down. This is a real, and this is where real change begins to happen in us and take off. It's where real de- deep faith comes from. Now, none of that's easy, I know. Like, I, n- none of what I'm saying, I, I, I get it. I've struggled with these things over the past. I've been in so many moments where I'm like asking, desiring something that I have explored at length and thought there is nothing bad about this. Why would you not bring clarity? But I'm just left in this space of silence. You know, no answer. What do you want me to do with this, God? You know? And I think we're uncomfortable with that. I think it's why we avoid silence. So I, we, we avoid these moments. We just distract ourselves. But we need to do this. None of it's easy. I get it. But this kind of waiting and confronting will, and this is what I've learned to be true, and the text highlights this, as difficult as it is, this gets us closer to the wounds of Jesus. It gets you closer to them. Here's what I mean. Friends, I don't, I don't know how the ups and downs of your life, and you, and you have them just like I have them, I don't know how they all will fit together, but you're wading through hard questions and doubts, that will wound you sometimes. Some of you might be feeling that way now. Like you feel you've been waiting for clarity, you've been waiting for answers, you've been waiting for something to change, and it doesn't make sense, and you're starting to feel upset or disappointed in God, and trying to manage that, and you're just starting to feel wounded by it all. I mean, sometimes waiting is just downright humiliating. And that, but that humiliation, what I've learned, is a part of your depth. It, 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 it's a part of the development of your character. So important to realize that. Consider for a moment, though, that the resurrected Jesus has scars. Now, just let it sink in. Because you pass it over like, well, yes, I... He has scars. No, think about it. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. This is where, you know, it's where they stabbed me. God took a, how did, when you made Eve, where did it come out of? His side. The rib out of his side. And Jesus gets up on the cross and they stab him in the side, and water and blood pours out. He's giving birth to a new humanity, a new beginning, a new opportunity. And he's saying, here, touch it, because you can see it. It's real. And you say, well, of course, man. Matt, what are you talking about? <laughs> he was brutally executed. Of course he has scars. No, hold on, hold on. He has been resurrected. That's wild and crazy. And apparently, and I don't know how, I don't. But John is telling us, he's making sure we know, he can walk through walls. So you've got this Jesus who both can walk through walls, and yet he's got scars? Jesus could have resurrected with a perfect body type, right? Like me? 
Like, I'm like, I'm re-upping as Brad Pitt. You know what I mean? Like, the second iteration is not this. Uh, Jesus has this, these options. Uh, he, he could have dropped the whole Isaiah 53 two thing <laughs> that says that Jesus had no beauty that we should desire him. And Jesus could have said, can we, like, rework that for the second round? But no, instead, Jesus resurrected. His resurrected self still has the signs of his, of his physical pain, of his sorrow, and his humiliation, and his mutilation. And I think we need to understand that as marks of his love. And I think that, that in some way, this is why he wants them to remain. It's not just in, for the purposes of identifying him, like, oh, that's him but it's also to a, a particular way that he wants you to view him. I bled for you. And I don't want the remembrance of it to ever go away. It's part of Jesus' depth. Conjecture, but I think that forever in the new heavens and the new earth, we will see Jesus face to face and we will see him with those marks. They will always be there. And I think we need to realize that his scarred body is part of his depth. He's keeping them. They're integrated into his story. They're healed. Scars have been healed. They're not open wounds, right? So I'm not saying we're going into the new heavens and the new earth with open wounds. Revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear from your eye. There will be no more hurt, no more pain. But that assumes something, right? That you've been crying a lot. That you enter into the new heavens and the new earth like, oh man, it's been rough. Yeah, welcome. It's over now. But it, you have to realize that it's part of that process. It's the integration that has to happen. We have to say, it's, this, it's just real. It's happened. It doesn't define my whole reality. There is wonderful hope in Jesus. But man, I walk with a limp. Yep. And so does he. Like he, this is how we need to understand him. This is how we identify ourselves with him. For those of us in Christ, your wounds are a part of your depth. It's part of your beauty. It will be the marks of your love for Jesus so long as you hold on to him. And I'm not saying go running headlong into humiliation and pain. I'm not saying that. The Bible never says that. The Bible doesn't say go look for woundedness. No, no, no. It's just saying that it will find you. And what will you do when it does? You, he, if you let him, he will use it to shape you and form you into his image. You've been made for this. You've been made for that. You're like, is he saying I've been made for pain? To a certain extent, in this broken creation, yes. To walk through it and come out the other side of it. We're called to walk through this broken, real, this broken world and realize that so did he and that his suffering and his wounds can help you realize that you can go to him and rely on him even when you don't understand. And so as we come to the table this morning, the, the, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, as we often call it, taking this bread, taking this wine, this bread representing Jesus' body, this wine representing Christ's blood shed for us. I understand that not very much of what I've said as we come to the tables this morning has been very comforting to you. Hopefully, 
to some degree helpful and maybe even encouraging and inspiring, but at the same time, like, oh, I understand that. If anything, I've painted a picture of trouble and a lot of hard reflection. But there is a deep consolation there at the end of this passage that you have to take in with Thomas. Although Jesus is talking to Thomas, if you notice that Jesus does this very, very clever thing where he speaks in such a way where he has you in mind. He knows that you'll be listening, watching, and reading. And so he says something just so that you can hear it. Did you catch it? John makes sure that you catch it. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, and I think he's happy with Thomas, but realize Thomas is like JV. And there's a varsity team. And guess who's on it? You. Have you believed, Thomas? Well, blessed are those that don't see. There'll be people after you that don't see, that don't get this opportunity to touch. And they're going to hang on. They're going to believe in me. And they don't have to, they don't go through this. They don't get to experience the thing that you're experiencing. It's pretty obvious what he's saying. Jesus knows what you're up against. He's very well aware of it. He knows how difficult it is to believe and to hold on to that belief. It's nothing short of a miracle, which he's made clear in other parts of the Gospels, that it's a work of God for you to believe. I'm not saying you throw out reason. You do use reason. There's sound evidence for why, if we do the work and we do the study, there's sound evidence as to why we can, we can trust in the fact that Jesus existed and that something incredibly miraculous took place in his life, and all signs point to the fact that he is the Son of God. So there is evidence, but there's, I'm not going to lie to you, there is a deeper level going on in our belief and holding on to belief. And Jesus knows that. There is something inside us that needs to tug and say, this is someone that knows me to the depths, and I have moments in my life where I really sense his presence. And it's not every day, I understand, but there are moments like that. And if you feel that this morning, then trust me, it's the living God that's drawing you. It's the living God that's calling you. It's the living God that is dealing with you. And enjoy it and worship him and serve him with everything you've got. And if you don't feel it, I would just say, hey, hold on. Keep asking questions. Keep praying. Keep opening this word, searching for him. You just might be in a season of waiting. You might be in a season of where you need to go inward and start to really analyze what it is that you want, what it is that you really hope for. And there's gold there. There's just wonderful things for you to explore there. And so wherever you're at this morning, you're invited to come forward to this station or this station. It's not for perfect people. It's for people that are looking to Jesus and claiming him like Thomas, my Lord and my God. You don't have to be a member of this church. The way we do it is we have a line that forms here and up here as well, either station, and we take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. And if that's not where you're at this morning, I'm glad you're here. And I just hope that this, this service has been a blessing to you, and I hope you stick around and ask questions. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we give you thanks this morning. And we uh, praise you 
for the work of dying and resurrecting on our behalf. And I hope that as we go through difficult seasons of life that we hang on to that truth and that we believe it and that we let it shape us. For those of us that are still wrestling with doubts, Father, may your spirit comfort us in a profound way, bring a sense of awareness to us that it wasn't there before. Keep us asking questions. Keep us curious. Keep us looking to you. And for those of us that are in a position where we feel confident in you, may we minister and encourage our friends and our family that are not. Give us that calling and that sense of direction, that sense of purpose. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.